Let us pray before we go to God's Word. Oh, what a wonderful offertory that was. God, thank you for the words in the chorus that you are the author of creation, and you are the Lord of every man, and your cry of love rings out across the lands. And as Philip was praying, God, we are to be used of you too. And as Pastor Bill was praying, to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the Savior. And we pray, God, as we continue to learn of him and delve into your word and the things that he's been teaching uh, through the Gospel of Mark, uh, that our hearts would be set aflame to, to proclaim Christ the author of creation, and the Lord of every man. And we pray, God, that uh, as we do that, we would be in unity together, in support of one another, helping each other to, to grow spiritually. And, and even this time, Lord, in your word is towards that end. So thank you, Father, for all these incredible blessings you've given us today. And we pray that your word uh, would continue to edify and uh, encourage our souls that we might live more and more for the one who died and rose again. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we're continuing our sermon title from last week, which is the question of authority. This is kind of part two, part two of two uh, to that uh, sermon title and kind of sermon um, topic. And it's a good theme. It's a good authority. If you would turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12, it's good for all of us to be looking at the text together as we go through it. But the question of authority, and you know that word almost seems like a a bad word uh, in today's world, doesn't it? Authority, like you almost see it with a capital A and like bold and, uh, you know, bold font and, and, you know, whatever, 48 size. And so um, as I was teaching that a little bit to the youths on Friday in follow-up to last Sunday's sermon, and we had our, our visiting um, dear friends uh, from the neighborhood, um, it, 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 that was a little bit of the vibe that it was almost like a, a bad word, even as you define it, right? Uh, the power or right to give orders and uh, to enforce obedience and to make decisions. Like this is what the definition of authority is. And so um, it seems like a a bad thing these days uh, somehow, but we understand that authority uh, and all the authority structures that we mentioned last week in the society and in the church and in the home and just uh, at work, all of those are designed by God for societies and individuals flourishing, and he knows how all things are supposed to work, and since it's from him, Authority is actually a good thing because it's from God, who is the authority over every human authority that he is assigned. So, um, as I mentioned last week, uh, respect for authority has been waning for uh, several decades now. Uh, I just uh, remember even in my high school years, uh, for part of my high school years in the 1980s, um, I went to a school for a portion of that time. Um, It was a Quaker school and we were were told to call our teachers by their first names and so this is a high school so ninth grade on right 14 to 17 18 years old 
uh, calling adults uh, by their first names. It seemed a little odd at first, but, you know, just as a pagan unbeliever, I quickly adjusted, and it didn't seem like any big deal. But um, first name to our teachers. And uh, I just remember even in my seminary days, it was a completely different story, right, uh, as a Christian and Christian institution. Um, Dr. Buzanitz, our esteemed uh, and, and very just reverential man of God, who I think he was the, the academic dean at that time, um, he told us, you know, adult men, some of us are a little bit older, uh, he, he said, you, you call me Dr. Buzanitz uh, during your time in seminary, but after you graduate, you can call me Irv. <laughs> so that was kind of the thing, and it kind of set the tone for the, the rest of the, the professors and everything. But, um, wow, there's just, you know, many adults today even, uh, just in the world, they, you know, they kind of sometimes instruct our, our children uh, through the years to, we would introduce them and as Mr. and Mrs. They say, oh, just call me by my first name and, you know, you make me feel old and that kind of thing. But um, we're, we're trying to instill in our, our children respect for authority. Um, once again, because just authority to parents or authority to teachers or because we're trying to teach them the authority and fear of God. And so um, that was the whole point. So the, the irony of the, the Christian life is that as we um, seek to continue to respect the God-given authorities that he's given in life and in the world, and we understand the reasons and everything, we, we are the ones who are being counterculture now. Back in the day, if you didn't respect authority and you were like against the establishment and you were kind of uh, rebellious that way, you were, you were the, the counterculture people. But um, I realized after I got saved and these principles and these truths came to uh, be applied, um, I realized that I was the one who was, who was now as a Christian, counter-world, counter-intuitive, counter-culture. And uh, so that's just the reality, the irony of the Christian life. We're always going to be in the minority. And uh, we hold to these things, hopefully, because uh, we understand them from God's word. And so all that being said... Uh, you know, I don't want to give a whole lot of caveats, but we understand that authority can be abused. And, um, you know, whether it's in the, the, the workplace or it's in the church or it's in the government or it's at home um, or at school, uh, authority can be abused. Um, and so we understand that part of it, too. But um, uh, we have the Christian uh, way to, to do things and how things are to be ordered. And we go by that. So. This leads into our, our sermon in Mark chapter 12, our sermon text, Mark chapter 12. I'm not going to read it yet, but um, verse 1 is the, the first verse there. And it says, he began to, and he began to speak to them in parables. So uh, this is continuing from last week. And just uh, as we get going here, Jesus is about to teach, speak a, a parable to some people, and just as a, a reminder, uh, as we get into the, the passage, a parable is a story that uses common, observable objects or practices to illustrate a spiritual truth or principle. Right? Just to, you know, just to remind us again what a, a parable is. It's an illustration, basically, placed alongside of a truth to make that truth easier to understand. Okay? So that was a lot of words there. Um, I love. Uh, Mrs. Shirley Malika's um, definition of parable, which Phoebe was her first grade teacher at Grace Community School, and uh, she simply called it an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Okay, so if you want to just be reminded of that, so this is uh, coming up is known as the the parable 
of the wicked tenants. Okay, tenants, T-E-N-A-N-T-S. Not to be confused with tenants, T-E-N-E-T-S. Tenants. And who is he speaking this parable to? Well, it says to them there in verse 1. And last week we learned it was to this group called the Sanhedrin. Remember, this is the chief priests and elders and scribes, scribes and elders of Israel. This powerful entity of men who were associated with the high priest. They were the political and spiritual authorities of the land. They were religious men who knew the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, the, the, the scribes were actually lawyers and they were supposed to be experts in the law, God's law. And they were in charge of the temple worship and practices there. So we recall from last week that they were challenging the authority of the Lord Jesus. And they were threatened by his teaching and his cleansing of the temple that happened just a couple days before. These unbelieving religious men are silenced by Jesus as we got to the end of the, the chapter 11 last week. And here, with this indicting parable, he's exposing them and he's putting them to shame. And just a quick, by the way, uh, usually Jesus taught in parables to keep the truth from those who were rejecting him. The unbelievers wouldn't be able to understand what he was talking about, the meaning of his parables. And he taught this way for those who desired to hear and see and know. And so oftentimes he would take his 12 disciples aside or some other disciples and privately explain the meaning to them. But that's not the case here. Look at the end of our our passage in, in chapter 12, verse 12. The end of the passage tells us, verse 12, and they, the Sanhedrin, okay, the, the, the scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, they were seeking to seize him. They take him away, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. They understood it clearly. Okay? And so they left him for now and, and went away. So it's like Nathan the prophet to King David, right? In Second Samuel 12, after... David commits his horrendous sin of adultery and even uh, leading to murder. And Nathan the prophet uh, gives him that story of the rich man and the poor man. The rich man has everything, an abundance of everything, animals and sheep and livestock and everything and money and everything. And the, the poor man has just one, one sheep. And then the traveler comes along to them and the rich man is about, and they're supposed to give. And instead of giving of his abundance, the rich man goes and takes the, the one man's little deer, only you, and uses that for the hospitality of this visiting person. And so David, King David, says, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And what does Nathan the prophet say? You are the man. And so like that, the Sanhedrin were exposed here. After Jesus tells this parable, this story, this illustration, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And they are exposed, put to shame through this parable. So let's read it with the understanding that our theme is those who refuse to acknowledge and embrace Jesus's authority over their lives will be silenced and they will be exposed and they will be put to shame. So if you're able to, please stand with me. I'm going to read our text today, Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables, and this is it. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower 
and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. And have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to seize him, yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. Please be seated. Last week's outline, as we went through verses 27 to 33 of chapter 11, was simply that rejectors of Jesus' authority are silenced. And today it's kind of continuing on that, and it's within our theme. By the way, you have an insert there if you're wanting to take notes. But rejectors of Jesus' authority are exposed and put to shame. And that's the rest of part two here as we conclude this uh, two-part little um, continuing passage from chapter 11 into verse 12 here. And so uh, the way I want to frame this, though, is I want us to see God's attributes through this truth and this principle that those who reject the authority of Christ are going to be put in their place. Okay, so I want us to see um, just four aspects of God's attributes here as we, as we go through this parable. And in verse 1, the first one is God's goodness. God's goodness. And he starts off there in verse 1, the parable, and he's quoting from the Old Testament. And the beginning of that is quoting from Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2. Right? And so listen to Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. And, and again, all caps, if you have a NASB or, or a translation of the Bible, all caps in the New Testament means that he's referencing or quoting the Old Testament. And this is Isaiah 5, 1 and 2. And it says there, Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. Isaiah is speaking in the first part there of the Lord God. That's his well-beloved, his well-beloved friend. And so his well-beloved friend who is God, he has the vineyard. And he cultivates it in a fertile land, as Isaiah writes. So in Jesus' parable, it's pretty straightforward to understand, right? A man here is 
is depicting God, the Father. And the vineyard represents Israel, which belongs to God. So I, I want us to notice all that God did. Okay, all those verbs there, in back to Mark chapter 1 and in Isaiah 5, all those verbs there are speaking of God's actions. So the first thing is he planted the vineyard. Okay, so there's many Old Testament references to Israel as the vineyard. Jesus' listeners, the Sanhedrin, everyone who was there would have recognized that immediately. Okay, Isaiah 5 um, that we just read, Jeremiah 2.21, it says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed, talking about Israel. Psalm 80, verses 8 and 9 says, You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. Psalm 88 and 9. Others, Jeremiah 12:10, Hosea 10:1. We could go on, but I won't read those. So this is a common picture in the Old Testament Scripture. Okay, the comparison of Israel to a vineyard. And God is the one who chose and made his people. It depicts God's work. I mean, someone has to plant a vineyard, right? And so in addition to that, it goes on to show God's goodness in tending to his people and giving them all that they need. What's the other verbs there? He put a wall around the vineyard. Well, the wall or the fence is there to, to make it secure, to protect it against wild animals and other dangers, right? So God's protection over his people he dug a vat under the wine press. Okay, this is um, essential equipment for processing the crops. And apparently the, the upper part of this press is for gathered grapes uh, to be crushed. And, and it's connected to the lower part of the, the press by a channel which the, the juice flows from the crushed grapes down and it collects there in the bottom part. And so this is equipment. And he built a tower. This is further protection, a watch guard against marauders and other enemies over his vineyard. These things were usually 15 to 20 feet high. Sometimes they were used for shelter and storage as well. So already, I hope we can see God's goodness in all of this. He chooses, he creates, he protects, he equips, he works, he watches over. And Jesus goes on in this parable, and it's not direct to Isaiah 5, but continues alluding to it. He rented it, the vineyard, out to vine growers and went on a journey. So in Jesus' day, this was known. It was a standard practice for owners of vineyards to hire these vine growers, right? Um, tenant farmers. Some translations say husbandmen. But these tenant farmers were to take care of the vineyard, making sure it was healthy, was producing fruit, and making a profit for the owner. The owner could expect even to receive as much as half the, the amount of grapes as payment by the tenants for use of the land. And so again, it's pretty abundantly clear that these tenant farmers, these vine growers, represent uh, the Jewish religious leadership through the ages. And God has left his land and people to them for them to cultivate and steward and shepherd and to bear fruit for God. So, by implication, uh, I want us to recall, um, recognize, and see God's goodness in all of this. And he's good to his people. He's careful. He tends to them. He equips them. He provides. And I think we can recognize God's goodness to us. Okay, whatever lot in life 
he's given, whatever situation we find ourselves in. If nothing else, we have life. We have life and breath and the innumerable blessings and opportunities that we've been given. Hey, the truth is God has given us common grace and all of those blessings that we wouldn't even be able to count if we started listing them. And he's given all that and more. God is good all the time. He is good. Psalm 118, it, it's, um, we're going to go to that a little bit later, but um, it says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his loving kindness is everlasting. And that seems like just simple, you know, Christian speak um, might, might sound like that. But it is deep, profound, eternal, life-giving, life-saving truth. God is good, and he's good all the time. And so I want to just, you know, those of us who've had maybe uh, rough backgrounds, like how much do we need to remember that truth and, and keep, keep uh, abiding in that truth when times are, are difficult and our souls are, are, are in agony and uh, we're just struggling um, spiritually. We need to remind ourselves of what God says is true. And so... You know, Israel, 400 years of, of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh. God is good all the time. God is good. Was it easy for um, uh, Hebrew kids uh, to grow up in that situation okay, as, as children? Was it easy for, for the Hebrew parents of these children born into that situation? No, it wasn't easy. But was God good throughout all? Was, was he watching over them? Did he have a plan? Did he have a purpose? Yes, he did. He was good. Was it easy for the Israelites after they were delivered from that and just uh, traveling through the wilderness for 40 years? Hey, um, we had a heat wave uh, recently here in Southern California, right? Just, um, just be reminded that the, the desert is, uh, in Israel is not a fun place to be, right? Day and night. And, you know, truth is we, we do have air conditioning in this country. Um, most of us somewhere in our homes or, you know, uh, in our cars or in this blessed building or at work, um, for the most part, at school. And uh, if not, you know what, we can go to, into a McDonald's and get a little respite. There, there was no respite uh, in that wandering, um, except, of course, God, who was a cloud for cover for them. But my point is it wasn't easy, and yet God was good. God was good. I can see God's goodness to me looking back in my life, even as an unbeliever. And many times, uh, just being in very, very uh, extremely dangerous situations and neighborhoods and just circumstances, many times of my own doing, um, God was good. Uh, sometimes I was just in a bad, um, just spiritually uh, wrong or dark state of mind. Hey, God took care of me. And he, he restrained the evil around me, and he also restrained the evil in me, that I would not commit even worse and darker and more depraved sins. And so into my days as a Christian, you know, we call that common grace, right, as an unbeliever, which it's just, I think it's a poor term, but um, common grace, and there's special grace as, as a believer, you know, all the provision and blessing that we have in Christ, first in our precious salvation and forgiveness of all of our sins, but the fact that he preserves us, he keeps us, he continues to watch over us in a special way. God loves us, his adopted sons and daughters. And so I remember all that, and um, uh, just it points to, once again, God's goodness all the time. He doesn't change. So I want us to recognize his continual goodness toward us in great gratitude. 
that we might yield and trust in his good authority over every area of our lives. And let us follow what his will is for our lives. Okay? Recognizing and remembering he was so good to us in the past. And he's good to us right in this moment, right now. And he will continue to be good in the future. Come what may, God is going to be good. And so, let us follow what we know to be his will as revealed in his word. Right? We know what to do for the most part. And so that is to obey his loving authority over us and singing that good song that God is good all the time. God is good. There are many who refuse this authority over their lives, protesting and grumbling, complaining about it now. But you know what? They're going to be silenced. They're going to be exposed and they're going to be put to shame, just like the Sanhedrin here. Next, I want us to see in this parable God's grace. God's grace. And this is the next section, verses 2 through 8. But the first couple verses there, as Jesus continues speaking, he says, At the harvest time, he, the vine grower, uh, sent a slave, the vine owner sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. As would be expected at harvest time, the owner of the vineyard sends someone, in this case a slave, to bring back the fruit that the vine growers would have produced. But instead of that happening, as we just saw, the vine growers abuse the slave, they give him nothing, and they kick him out. So who do the slaves in Jesus' parable represent? This is God's prophets that he sent to Israel in the nation's course of history. And the prophets were sent by God to proclaim his messages, to, to hold Israel accountable to faith and obedience, and to remind them that they were to be set apart from the false gods around them, while at the same time they were to be a light to the lost nations. Okay, that's what this, these glad slaves, these messengers, these prophets were sent to the vineyard, to Israel, to do. But of course, the long, sad history of Israel's leaders and people is that of false worship, false religion, disobedience, and rebellion. They don't listen to God's messengers. Rather, they follow the wicked and immoral ways of the world around them instead. So those of us who have read the Old Testament um, can see that. Verses 4 and 5 says again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and that one they killed. And so with many others beating some and killing others. In other words, this pattern is repeated. The next slave, next messenger, next prophet, the next even killing another, so on, beating some, killing others. Each one the master and the owner sent, they were abused, even murdered. But what continual grace God shows toward his people. Even through this wickedness, even through disobedience. What incredible patience, what long-suffering. Listen, folks, like, think about this. How many times would you accept that kind of abuse from people? And, And keep giving, and keep forgiving, and then keep giving. 
Even the dog shakes her head, right? Just God sends his prophets. For example, Isaiah. Okay, according to early church fathers, he was sawn in half with a wooden saw. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, right? Constantly mistreated, even falsely accused of things like treason in Jeremiah 37. He was thrown into a pit, next chapter. And according to tradition, early church history, he was stoned to death by the Jews. Ezekiel also faced uh, the similar kind of hatred and hostility, Ezekiel chapter 2. The prophet Amos, he was on the run, forced to flee for his life, Amos 7. Zechariah was rejected. Micaiah was struck in the face, 1 Kings. And on and on it goes. God continually sent his prophets, even though they were abused, mistreated, even killed. And we know what happened to John the Baptist a little bit closer to the time that Jesus is speaking here to the Sanhedrin, right? Head cut off by King Herod. So even though God expected Israel to bring forth fruits of righteousness, right? Good fruits, as Isaiah talked about. It continually produced sour grapes of selfishness and sinful living instead. Okay? Worthless ones, as Isaiah 5 says. And this showed in their horrible treatment of God's prophets. But again and again, how much grace, mercy, patience God continued to pour out on his people, his precious vineyard. You know, one might listen to this parable and think, wow, that, that vine owner is so foolish. Okay, but I want us to see, rather, God's grace, his, his long-suffering, his loving-kindness for sinful people, sinful leaders, sinful laymen, in other words, people even like us. I hope we're seeing how amazingly good and gracious God is in all that he does. So he brings it home to the Sanhedrin here and all who are listening to this parable. And it comes to the point where the the vine owner, he finally sends even his own beloved son. Thinking surely they will respect my son. But what happens? Verse 7 and 8. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Well, this is an obvious reference to Jesus himself, who is the Son of God, and what they're going to do to him. The Sanhedrin are being exposed through this story. They were, the vine growers were unfaithful. They were disloyal, rebellious, traitorous. What were they doing? Rejecting the authority of the vine owner who hired them. Instead of accepting the the gravity of the owner sending even his own son, hey, a slave is one thing, right? But instead of accepting that and and deciding to to turn around and and turn from their, their wickedness and repent and respecting him, their plan and plot is to murder him and take the vineyard for themselves. They somehow think that they can be the ones in charge. This is a picture of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leaders. Continuing in their murderous, hateful, rebellious ways, rejecting God's authority over them. Self-seeking, self-righteous, self-centered, 
their authority, their political, spiritual, religious authority being threatened here. They didn't have true faith in God. They did not know him. They would not submit to his authority in their lives. Their hateful hearts overflowed with murderous thoughts and plans. And the crowds of the fickle people even, okay? Uh, these many lost sheep, they're going to follow in their leader's footsteps and their thirst for blood in just a few days. Okay, again, the context is Passion Week. So a brief implication for us all is that this is what happens when people repeatedly reject God's grace and truth and repeatedly refuse his authoritative word over their lives. Okay, especially unbelievers and an ultimate, they're, they're, they're going to end up in, in condemnation, but um, even for believers. Okay, so um, for unbelievers, uh, someone put it this way. They essentially put, put Jesus to death as they continue to reject his lordship and his love. As someone put it years ago, they carry around in their pockets the nails that were driven into the Savior's hands. The vine owner said, they will respect my son. And God sends Jesus, his son, to the Jews, to the Sanhedrin, to the world, and says, as it were, they will respect my son. But instead of respect, they reject him. They will not yield authority to God the Father and God the Son. So I want to um, share a, a quote by Pastor Jeff Thomas with you on the Lordship of Christ. And, uh, you know, if, if any of you this morning are not sure if you are saved, um, and just, again, just kind of teetering or on the brink or sitting on the fence of whether you are going to yield your life to Christ or not. It's helpful what he says here. Quote, he says, I'm asking you, what do you think of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm insisting that if his claims are true, then you must bow the knee to him. You must submit your intellect you must fall before him in wonder and love and praise. But then you protest that you don't feel anything. I'm not talking about feelings. I'm telling you a great fact of history that Jesus said, God and I are one. That is objective reality. Either that is the authority of a simpleton maniac or it is the authority of the living God. If they are God's words then you must bow the knee and submit to the authority of Christ because the Christian faith is true. It seems that often men and women are looking for other reasons than that for becoming Christians. To us, there's one great reason for being a Christian, and that is because it is true. And the moment it is true, it has the right to allegiance of every human being. That is the authority of Christ. Okay? He's the Lord of every man, right? According to our wonderful offertory today. He goes on. I could speak to you and tell you that the gospel will give you comfort. It can make you feel good. It can help your marriage. It can meet felt needs. All of that might be true, but other religions and psychologies are offering the same thing. So let's go back a step and consider the authority of Christ. It is true that when Jesus spoke, the winds and the waves obeyed him. 
It is true that the tomb was empty. It is true that Christ arose. It is true that he is God. I'm urging your submission in the name of that authority and objective reality. Christ claimed to be in the beginning with God, and if that is true, then it transforms all my life. It both commands and deserves my allegiance. Some days you will feel religious. Some days you will feel prayerful. Other days you may feel tortured by doubts. But the case for Christianity does not fluctuate as our feelings do. It rests on the authority of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is to that solid rock I would direct all of you. That is the place on which I want you to stand on Jesus, the God-man with authority, end quote. And so by God's grace, everyone, if, especially if you are an unbelieving friend here with us this morning, I call you to submit your heart and life to the authority of Jesus Christ. And I would also call us as believers who have done that to submit every, every part of our, every area of our life, every part of our heart to the loving and good and gracious authority of our dear Lord. Rejectors of Jesus' authority are going to be exposed and put to shame. And we're seeing this even through God's goodness and through God's grace. And next, verse 9, through God's justice. God's justice. The first part of verse 9, Jesus simply says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers. Okay, he answers that obvious question of, of what the, the vine growers going, the, the owner is going to do to those who reject his authority and his rights. He's going to come and destroy the unfaithful vine growers and he'll give it to others. So once again, these vine growers, these tenant farmers, they represent the Sanhedrin, the religious authorities, and ultimately everyone who rejects God's son and God's goodness, God's grace, God's gospel, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to face God's judgment. They're going to face hell. And this is after refusing his gracious blessings. Okay, these, these men, these Sanhedrin, this group, thought that they were the ones in charge. Okay, somehow they believed that they could be the owners of the vineyard, so to speak. But Jesus is correcting and exposing them here. Okay, what, a, what a promise, what a warning from the Lord. And it's, again, to the, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders here back then, and to, to those today who are here who have not believed on Christ, who have not placed their faith in Jesus alone. The day of justice and the day of reckoning is coming. Okay, whether you know it or will face it or not, or accept it or not. Okay, there's, a, there's a town in Colorado called Twin Lakes, and pretty much every first-time visitor driving to that town hits the brakes when they first arrive in. And why is that? Because just as you go over the hill heading into town, there's a police car with a mannequin sitting behind the wheel. And before you realize that it's just a dummy, you hit your brakes because you think that you're going to be accountable. Well, this is your reminder today. Hey, God is no dummy. Hey, he's real. He is absolutely real. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the vineyard. He's the rightful heir and owner of everything, of your life. All of life belongs to him. Either we submit it to him and yield to him as Lord, or we're going to face certain judgment. 
it says there that he gives the vineyard to others. And um, again, we're seeing God's justice or God's judgment. And in this parable, others possibly represents the 12, okay, his disciples, the apostles, um, possibly extending beyond that, the spiritual leaders of, of the early church, okay, as we read the book of Acts and the, the epistles, um, and throughout the church age. More broadly, this could also refer to the Gentiles, who are going to be a nation, okay, a part of the new entity that's being formed, the church. And this is not to replace Israel, but to be grafted into the branch, added onto. And so uh, we're going to get into that in our last point here. So let's look at it. Okay? So we've seen God's goodness. We've seen God's grace. We've seen God's justice. Lastly, I want us to see God's glory. God's glory. The last few verses here. And by glory, we mean according to God's glorious plan and purposes. Okay, that's what I mean when I say that in your blank there, through God's glory. According to God's glorious plan and purposes. Like no human being or collection of human beings could have ever come up with any of this, okay, or invented it or created this. This was God's plan from the beginning and all of it according to his perfect purposes. And the ultimate thing is to bring glory to himself. So it's through God's glory for God's glory. And our Lord sheds light on the meaning of this parable by referencing this Old Testament scripture. And here's Psalm 118. Okay, Psalm 118. And uh, by the way, this was possibly written by Moses. Some think it was by Moses. Some think it was by David. Others think it was written after the exile. Okay, whoever it was. It tells us that even that far back, okay, whether it was several hundred years or a thousand years or 1,400 years or even beyond, okay, the plan was already in place. God's plan was already in place. And this is part of his glory that I want us to see. What was the plan? Well, the plan was that the Messiah would be rejected. And Jesus shifts imagery here as he quotes Psalm 118. And it's from the son in the parable to the stone of this psalm. And the vine growers to the builders, right? So as the vine growers in the parable rejected the son, so the builders in Psalm 118 rejected the stone. And Jesus says, have you not even read this scripture? He expected these experts of the law to know. It's a, it's a messianic psalm. When we say messianic, we don't mean it's messy and hard to understand. We mean capital M, Messiah. It refers to the Messiah. And in fact, it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, Psalm 118. And so the, the general theme of this psalm is salvation. And it's with the call, as I said earlier, uh, to give thanks to Yahweh because of his goodness and his everlasting love. He is the deliverer. He's the savior from death. And uh, you know what? If you turn there to, to Psalm 118 for a moment you'll be reminded in verses 25 and 26. It says this, O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. 26, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And those, those words should sound familiar to you all because these are the very words that the crowd 
were shouting out and screaming and yelling out in praise to Jesus as he rides into Jerusalem on the donkey just two days before all this, um, this parable is happening. And so they're, they're, they're quoting from, from Psalm 118, Hosanna, save now, we beseech you, Lord, salvation. And so the verses that Jesus refers to are just a few before that, verses 22 and 23, which says, just like he said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So the stone there is the Messiah, the Savior, who will be rejected by the builders, but then becomes the chief cornerstone, which is the most important block of a building. If that that measurement or placement is off the mark, the whole building is going to be off and unstable. So as in a physical building, the cornerstone is the most important piece because it's the large stone that's placed in the foundation at the main corner of the building. So in Bible times, the the stones were cut, uh, made of cut squared stone, and the cornerstone united those two intersecting walls. And so uh, it aligns the whole building and it it holds it all together. Some people think it's not actually cornerstone, but capstone which would serve the similar purpose at the top. So whether it's at the bottom or the top, I think it's the bottom. But um, it's Jesus is, is the, the chief cornerstone who is in charge of the, the beneath, he's in charge of the above, and he holds everything in the whole building together. So in the New Testament, when we go there, we see that many times Jesus is referred to as that cornerstone, that chief cornerstone of the, the spiritual building, which is God's household which is the church, the body of believers. It's being built upon the perfect cornerstone. So where is that, you ask? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Uh, You can turn there or you can just listen. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. He says, so then you, who is he speaking to? Mostly Gentile believers of the Ephesian church. Since then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, which is the church, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. And it's almost like Paul is being like repetitive or redundant. Um, but it just, you know, when you hear it like that over and over, you understand clearly what he's saying. Okay, this unique stone, this preeminent stone is Jesus Christ himself. He's the supportive stone. All other stones are placed after him, upon him, and they rest on him. And so we're reminded of the the hymns of old, right? The solid rock. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And Peter, who was there while Jesus is speaking this parable, he's there for the whole thing, right? He says in in his epistle, 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6, And coming to him, to Jesus, as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, 
but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, talking to believers, right, as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then he says, for this is contained in Scripture. Same thing, right? Psalm 118. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Actually, um, it's also overlapping with Isaiah 28, verse 16, that Peter is um, referring to there. So once again, uh, the church's one foundation is who? Jesus Christ, her Lord. And she is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life he died. But again, what's going to happen to those who reject this cornerstone? The Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. What's going to happen to those who refuse his authority? Maybe you want to turn with me to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, which is the parallel passage to Mark 12 here. Matthew 21, verses 43 to 45. Actually, uh, just note in verse 40, after Jesus tells the parable, right? In verse 41, Matthew adds this. I was referring to Nathan the prophet before in David. But um, they said to him, the Sanhedrin said to him after hearing the parable, um, and they answer the question actually. Jesus asked in verse 40, Therefore when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 118, right? Um, which we just read. And then verse 43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. So, um, so it clearly there, the kingdom of God, he says, is going to be taken away and given to a people, a nation, okay, literally. And just this speaks of, again, the church, which includes the Gentiles who are grafted in, who will be saved. And it says, says there in Matthew 21, he who falls on this stone, okay, this rock, which is Jesus, will be broken to pieces. Okay, just with, so we understand that to mean that those who fall upon, who fall before this rock, which is Jesus, the stone, okay, they're going to be brought to um, that, that repentance, that contrition, that brokenness is going to lead to salvation. But on whomever the stone, the authority, the power of Jesus Christ falls, it will scatter that person like dust. In other words, judgment is going to fall on those who refuse to submit and yield themselves to the Lordship of Christ. And again, Peter, uh, in that same passage, back to Peter in 1 Peter 2, um, 
he punctuates that point again in verses 7 and 8 of 1 Peter 2. And this time he's quoting both Psalm 118 and Isaiah chapter 8. And he says this, The precious value, talking about the precious value of the stone of Jesus, then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's Isaiah 8.14 he's quoting. He says, For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So the rejection of the Messiah by the religious leaders, by the crowds, we're going to be yelling crucify, crucify in just a few short days. These rejectors of Jesus' authority, they don't win. Okay? Rejectors of God's power and authority, they're, they're never going to win. You won't win if you continue to refuse. Okay? These guys, they, they examined the stone. They looked at Jesus. They didn't see it to be fit. They saw it as misshapen or imperfect, no good actually, a rock to be tossed aside, thrown away as it were. He rejected to be done away with, to be destroyed actually, to be killed. But this very one became the chief cornerstone of a new entity that God is going to raise up, which which is us, his beloved church. And it's going to be made up of all who believe and submit to Christ following his death and resurrection. This was all part of God's glorious plan to bring glory to his own name. It was his plan from the beginning. It says there in Psalm 118, and Jesus says it, this came about from who? From the Lord, from Yahweh. The origin, the source, the idea, it all came from God. It was his plan, his purpose, his doing. His son, yes, he's going to be rejected and killed. He's going to rise from the grave unto eternal glory. And for those who recognize this, who believe it, there's no disappointment. Never, ever going to be disappointment. Never, ever going to be dismay. There's going to be hard times. Distress is troubles. Jesus promises that. But in the end, we're going to say, along with the psalmist there in 118, it was marvelous in our eyes. Marvelous as in wonderful, as in wondrous, as in admirable. Is something to be awestruck over, something to be just bowled over by. That's to those who have been humbled to believe. So as we wrap this up, again, this will lead into next week's sermon but, and text. But they were seeking to seize him. They wanted to, to take him away, arrest him. But they feared the people as they understood that this parable that he just spoke was against them. So they leave him for now and go away. They're silenced. They were exposed. And they're put to shame. So they got to leave. And uh, you know what? They, they, they had an opportunity here to repent, didn't they? David repented upon hearing about that. And there's other instances and um, stories in the Bible that, that speak of that. And just even in our own lives, those of us who are Christians, we have repented. Uh, upon the exposure of our sin. But these folks have been put to shame. They leave the scene. So I, I just want to give that promise to anyone who's not yet saved this morning. Okay, God promises whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
and you will not be disappointed. You won't be. Everything else in life may fail you. And at some point or another, everything else in life will fail you. Okay? Even, even your successes will fail you at times because they, they might make you prideful. They might make you think that you are able to do things in your own strength and wisdom. But Jesus, Jesus never fails. He never disappoints. He will never, ever fail you. So come to Christ. Come to Christ. Trust in him. Yield to his lordship. And for our precious, believing church family, okay, just receive and embrace and yield and continue trusting Jesus' authority over you. you you've experienced it over and over, right? I'm so glad I've learned to trust him, right? Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. Over and over, we're going to be singing that praise rather than be silenced. Hey, we're going to be revealed in glory, not exposed and put to shame. We're going to have honor with Christ. Hey, and our righteousness is going to show like the noonday sun. And uh, we need to continue to abide in those truths and, and get help and strength from God's Spirit in His Word to continue to live a life that will glorify Him. So on that, as we remember God's goodness, His grace, even His, His justice, and that all of this is for his glory. Let us, let us press on, onward and upward, for the honor of our Lord. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the sovereign king. Lord Jesus, we praise you for being the king of all kings and lord of all lords and the lord of every man. And we just uh, want to submit our lives and yield to you. Thank you for your promises. Thank you that you are worthy and trustworthy. Help us, Lord, in our doubts, in our fears, in our anxieties, in our leaning upon ourselves. Help us, God, to put off um, any sinful boasting in our own just uh, strength and wisdom. Uh, but let us continually look to you and and, and rest and have peace in all that you've, you've given to us in Christ. And uh, I pray, Lord, that your word has, will do its work in us and we will press on together for your glory. We thank you and praise you for all of these things in the strong name of Christ our Lord. Amen.